it, it is, um, I think it's important to discuss and really examine Chapter 4 as a unit, if we can possibly do it. But let me, let me introduce, because this is the conclusion of the Apostle Paul's um, loving chastisement of the Corinthians for their divisions. Um, but he's he's coming to the end of his uh, of his um, discussion of why there are divisions, why those splits and infighting that characterize the uh, the Corinthian church is, is is so serious. So let's think about it kind of applicationally in our lives, in your life, in my life. You have somebody that you really care about. And you know, you know they've made a faith commitment to Christ, so they're a believer. But their, their lifestyle or the, the things that characterize their life need to change. How do you deal with that? Do you ignore it? Paul's not ignoring it. Do you take your Bible and bang them over the head with it and, you know, try to beat them into submission to the will of God. Some people do that, and they're kind of masters at it. But what often happens is uh, there's not meaningful change as a result of that. So it's a mixture of very significant rebuke with amazing care, compassion, and love with accountability at the end. That's what Paul does in chapter 4. I mean, he's hit him across the side of the head a couple times with a spiritual 2 by 4 And he's going to start in chapter 4 again, reminding them of who we are as apostles. We're God's servants. And then he's going to really rebuke them. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's one of the most uh, scathing rebukes you can find. But then he's going to come back and just love them. And he's going to say some wonderful things about them. That he is their spiritual father and he cares for them. And then at the end he's going to say, and I'm going to send Timothy. And then I'm coming. Accountability. So that seems to be a pretty good model for us. You know, it's um, as a parent... And uh, I think many of you around the table are parents or have been parents in the sense that your children are raised like mine, or uh, your grandparents, and you're, you're dealing with that phase of life. But it is, it would be horrible if you never rebuked your children. But how you rebuke your children is really important. And you know what counselors call that tough love approach. Uh, when they're real little, you know, most of the time, when they're really small, just a stare, get them to change behavior. Or you raise your voice just a little bit and behavior changes. When they're teenagers, none of that works. There's got to be a whole new model of how you're going to deal with that. Kohlberg, who's an educational theorist, says that... Uh, the first six years of a child's life, the child is essentially obeying you 
and essentially following your values because of the threat of punishment. They don't even understand it necessarily. They just know they don't touch the oven when it's on. They don't quite understand why, but mommy said I'm not supposed to do that, and I know what will happen to me if I do do it. And then from about 6 to 11, they're, they're beginning to understand the difference between right and wrong. Values are important to them, but they're not their values. They know their mommy and daddy's values, and they're important to mommy and daddy, and so I go along with them. And he says when they're about 11 or 12 until early adulthood, the greatest challenge is, are they going to internalize your values? Because for the most part, reward punishment doesn't necessarily work with teenagers. They may, they may obey simply because they don't want to lose privileges with the car and stuff, but your values aren't their values. But you want them to internalize those. With the Corinthians, if you follow that, Paul is kind of, they're spiritual children of his, and they're not babies anymore, but they're not, he's wanting them to get to that step of internalizing the values of Christ. And about the, near the, the, the end of, the, of the, the, the paragraph, the end of the section, he says something bold and audacious. He says to them, imitate me. Would you ever say that to anybody? Mm-hmm. Seriously, would you ever say that to somebody? You want to know how to pull off the Christian life? Imitate me. So I want to I want to get I want to do all that if we can possibly do it today in one session. Um, and it I, I want you to think with me about it of how as an application, how you would apply this in dealing with people you really care about people that are important to you. And we're talking here about spiritual things. We're not talking about, you know, obeying the rules of the house or obeying traffic laws. It's You're really caring about people spiritually because these deal with eternal things. So that's what Paul is saying. So he starts, so you wish me to understand how I'm trying to get us to think applicationally, and, and, and that's exactly what he's doing. But I'm trying to get you to to think about it in your own, perhaps your own life. So I'm going to start right away with verse 1. And he reminds them, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. Two key words there. Servants, that is not the same word that he used earlier when we were discussing that in verse 5 of chapter 3. It's a totally different word. This is a military term of a private coming under the authority of a sergeant or a corporal coming under the authority of a lieutenant. I'm making up those ranks, but you understand what I mean. So it's in the sense that I am, I am coming under the authority. I am subordinating myself to the authority of someone greater than me. And, of course, that's, he says it. That's Christ. And then stewards. The Greek word there is oikonomia. What English word do we get from that? You weren't paying attention. I'll say it again. Uh, no, it's a specific English word. Oikonomia is the Greek word for steward. What English word do we get from that? Economy. Economy. We get a word economy from that. And it's correct and it's proper and actually really captures it. Steward. I am a steward of the mysteries of God. 
Now we read about that in chap we read about that in chapter two, that the mysteries of God are all of the Old Testament truths now revealed and unpacked and made clear in Christ. That's what Paul's doing. Okay, none of that is new. He's just reminding them. And he says in, in verse two that in this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. When you entrust it, you know, some of you are in real estate and I know you may even own property and you have somebody that manages your property, that's a steward for you. And the key thing you want is that they're trustworthy. You don't want them running off with half the rent money. I mean, you want you expect them, that's why you hire them. Well, God has chosen Paul to be an oikonomia, a steward of his truth. And the test for God is, is he being faithful? And so that's really, Paul is making the claim, let me just finish this thought. Paul is making the claim as he reminds them, here's who I am. You're exalting me, don't do that. I'm a steward. I'm coming under the authority of Jesus Christ. I'm subordinate to him, and I'm doing what he has asked me to do, a trustworthy, dependable steward of his truth. What is the word mysteries or secret purposes of God? What is, what is that word? What's well, mysterion, mysterion in Greek? Or just, and that's one of the problems or challenges with it, just bringing it from Greek into English letter for letter. And that doesn't help us. To, but we talked about that earlier in chapter 2. It's the truths that were in the Old Testament hidden. Now with Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection finished, now it's revealed. It's clear. We understand what that means. The 376 prophecies of the Old Testament, first that now revealed and clearly understood. Okay. Now, I'm not going to skip this, but I just want to summarize it. In 3, 4, and 5, all Paul does there is he says, because I am a servant coming under the authority of Christ, and I'm a steward, and he calls me to be trustworthy, he is the only one can evaluate me. Don't you guys judge me in the sense of Paul's not doing a very good job or you're elevating me, which only Christ can do that. So he's just reminding them, because I'm a servant and because I'm a steward, only Christ elevates me. That is, evaluates me. Don't you do it before the time. He's talking about the bamacy. He's talking about the, the judgment seat of Christ, not for not great way thrown, but for reward. Now, <clears throat> so that's just that's a quick review. None of that is is new. He's talked about that earlier, but now verse six through nine is an amazing review. And I assume I can use this. Yes. <clears throat> that's mine dinging all the time, isn't it? Well. <laughs> Now, these verses, this is, uh, was that six? Yeah, six through nine. This is one of the most subtle rebukes in Scripture I can find. Because what he does is filled with a lot of irony. But he sets up a comparison. He sets up a comparison between Paul, and he uses first-person plural, so he's 
talking about the other apostles too, and the Corinthians. Now the Corinthians believed that they were reigning with Christ in a spiritualized kingdom. Remember the very first time we met and we talked about the Corinthian, when we started this book, The Corinthian Problem? And I said, three things characterize the Corinthian self-understanding. One, they believe that to be spiritual is to exhibit all the flashy, exalting, self-elevating gifts. Remember that? Second is dualism. That very Greek, Greco-Roman idea, material things are evil, immaterial things are good. The third point was what I call realized eschatology. Now that's a big phrase and it's, nobody's ever heard of that. But it was the idea that they believed that they were living reigning, ruling with Jesus in some kind of spiritualized kingdom. And so therefore, they are exalting themselves. We're the super spiritual elite. And that's what he's going to deal with here. And he contrasts their spiritual perception of themselves with the reality thinking maybe N.T. Dodge doesn't have erasers. They don't make mistakes, but I guess there is one here. <clears throat> that was supposed to be a joke, but I guess <laughs> they got it. I was one time at, a, at an institution and they had a lot of pencils and not one of the erasers was being used. You know what I mean? I, I mean, oh, they're all, you know, eraser gets smudged. They were all absolutely precious. Well, nobody makes mistakes at this school. No. No. <laughs> He's contrasting their perception of the cell themselves and the reality of the apostles. Now, follow what he's doing here. It's really, really, really clever. Really shrewd. Now, these things, brothers, I figuratively applied to myself and Paulus for your sakes, that you might learn not to exceed what is written, in order that not one of you might be arrogant on behalf of one against the other. For who regards you, meaning Corinthians, as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? If you receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You're already filled? You've already become rich? You become kings without us? They're rhetorical questions. What is he saying? You guys have that perception, that idea that you're ruling and reigning with Jesus in some kind of spiritual kingdom. You're rich. You're kings. Because listen, Paul would have taught them, and they could see that in the Old Testament, that when the Messiah returns the second time, you will rule and reign with Christ. You're a joint heir with him. In some mixed-up, prostituted form, of their understanding of the kingdom, because Paul wouldn't have taught that, they believe, and this gets back to that spiritual idea, hey, we're already ruling and reigning in a spiritual kingdom with Jesus, which means we can elevate ourselves, which means we're part of a spiritual elite. And is Paul ever coming down hard on them? Do you see what he's doing? See why he chooses the words he chooses, rich, kings, reigning, what you've received. And he says, now let's look at reality. Verse 9. For I think God has exhibited us, apostles, 
last of all. Men condemned to death. We have become a spectacle to the world and to men. Now comment on that word spectacle. That Greek word spectacle was used to refer to the triumphal processional march of the great Roman generals. As they would march into Rome and bring all the booty and wealth that they'd captured from the conquered city. And the very last part of the processional were all the conquered people from that province, most of whom were taken into the wild animal shows or the gladiator games in the afternoon to be killed. That's the word Paul's using with spectacles. If you guys are ruling and reigning in some spiritualized form of the kingdom, how come we are condemned to death? How come we are the spectacles for this period of time? And he goes on. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. Does he really mean that? It's irony. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we're hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We toil working with our hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate. We become the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even unto now. He's contrasting how they perceive themselves with the reality of the apostles. Which runs right? These guys? This is the reality. And Paul, it, it isn't, Paul doesn't deny that he's going to rule in the reign of Christ. But he said, not now. To go back to the beginning of the chapter. My stewardship is to present the gospel, is to suffer for Christ. Because the reception of people in the Roman Empire is not necessarily embracing it. I'm being persecuted. And in 2 Corinthians 12, he lists all of the many, many things that had happened to him during his life. So, as a rebuke of the Corinthians, like you rebuke somebody you really care about, Paul compares reality with their false distorted, perverted perception of who they are. They perceived themselves as a spiritual elite group of people who could kind of do whatever they wanted. And Paul is rather forcefully rebuking them by contrasting their perception with the reality of what was characterizing most Christians in the early first century. How do we apply that today? That was my next question. So, But Fred asked it, so that's good. How do we apply this today? I don't think most of you are toiling with your own hands or being reviled or being persecuted or being slandered. You're certainly not the scum of the world or the dregs of all. <laughs> Those are really strong words. I mean, really strong words. 
The word scum, particularly, that is really an intense word. So I'm, I was trying to get you to think of applying this, of how you would gently rebuke somebody, call them to account. But you're asking a different question. So how do we apply this? Can we apply this contrast that Paul's setting up here? Can we apply this to our lives today? I mean, it's a, obviously, there's not the same persecution here at this point in time, but it's a, it's a call to humility, you know, um, to say, in, instead of saying, oh, you know, well, we're the guys that meet here and we study the Bible and we, and we, <clears throat> we know... It's not about that. It's about being a servant. It's about, mm. you know, emptying yourself and mm. connecting to God. Mm. That's what's important. The same lesson could be applied to us. You know, I've heard the letter to the Corinthians called the letter to the Californians before. <laughs> yeah. That being yeah. one of them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I think that oftentimes in our society, like you say, it's, it's pretty smooth sailing. But whenever... The priorities of secular life run into conflict with spiritual um, life and discipline. Uh, sometimes the the oil rises to the surface, and that oil would be that of the Romans and and uh, dealing as Christians dealing with the secular world. That their values may not be the same as the values that we seek to embrace and live in our lives. And um, at that point in time, there seems to be a, a, a wide expanse that becomes quite visible at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that, that's... One of, I mean, it is smooth until there is a, a hitch somewhere <laughs> in the road. And, and then the priorities of the world, the secular world, rise to the surface as dominant over the spiritual aspects of someone living their life according to biblical principles. And I'm not saying that's the answer, but I yeah. just... Yeah. I think one, one of the things that is probably true of the Corinthians, and uh, we'll see it in the next section of the book, uh, chapters five through uh, six, five and six. They're trying to take their Greco-Roman values and 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 morality and apply it and mix it with the teachings of Christianity. And you can't do that because the Greco-Roman did very the Greco-Roman did very much teach as a part of the worldview that there is an elite. There's an elite few. Now, you can talk about that elite few in terms of power. Those are Caesar and then Caesar's household and all that stuff. You can talk about it in terms of military power, the elite, sophisticated military machine that the empire put together, the legions, which was an absolutely incredible way of military organization. You can talk about it in terms of the elite of the culture itself. I mean, Rome brought order and structure to the world. They had, a, they had a template that they used in every city they built, and they all looked the same. And that's just a metaphor for everything Rome did. And so you become a Christian out of a worldview like that, you're going to naturally say, well, you know, 
there's got to be some kind of an elite group in this new faith. And obviously we're going to be the ones that aren't because we are Greeks. And so they're going to take the teachings of Paul and maybe Apollos about the coming kingdom and all that stuff and they're going to twist it and prostitute it to fit their... We are part of that spiritual league. And we're reigning and ruling spiritually with Jesus. <laughs> and obviously we're the ones who have made it. And you're right. You can get that perception today. Well, I attend a Bible study. And I'm obviously farther along spiritually, and farther I mean in this distance, than this guy over here. So I obviously am better than him. And therefore, I am part of an elite. That's horrible. Danger. Absolutely horrible way to look at things. But that is it's a danger we still face. We don't face the same issues as the Corinthians, but we seem to face the same issues of pride and self-elevation and arrogance. And Paul, as the gentle spiritual father of these people, is, I mean, this is one of the most sophisticated rebukes in Scripture. Here's your perception. Here's reality. Which one's true? And so, uh, I mean, unless they were absolutely dumb, moronic people, they would have gotten this. Then he launches into the love, compassion, and mercy of 14 through 16. As a parent, this is what you do after you discipline your child and you remind them that you love your child. You love them. I do not write these things to shame you, verse 14 reads, but to admonish you as my beloved children. What does admonish mean? Warn. It's kind of like a exhort. Counsel, a, a light rebuke. Uh -huh. What's the expectation of an admonishment? That something will change. That you will change. The expectation of an admonishment is that you'll change. How can he call them his children? What does he mean by that? He brought the gospel to them. That's right. Remember, he planted the church there the church. in the second missionary journey. He led all of them to faith. And I, I don't know about all of them and every single individual, but I mean the core that planted the church. He led them. So they are his children, spiritually speaking. Verse 15, For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Now, before we look at verse 16, why is he reminding them of that? Why is he reminding them of that relationship that they have? It kind of gives him the right to... Exactly, Joel. It gives him the right to rebuke them. I'm not just coming out of the blue. I am your spiritual father. Just like you guys around the table, if you have children, you're a father. And because you are a father, 
you have the right, but you have as well the responsibility to admonish. As a matter of fact, if you don't do it, you are being derelict in your responsibility. And I would say before God, I mean, God wants us to do that as, as parents. But, so, I mean, Joel nailed it. He's absolutely right. This gives him that right to say what he's saying. And then th- this verse 16 is just one of the most, it's one of the most shocking exhortations I see. In, in I would never say this to anybody. <laughs> I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. And literally, the word imitator is mimicked. It, we get our word mimic from that. So, I mean, it isn't just, I mean, you do exactly what I'm doing. You see me do it, you do exactly what I'm doing. Would you say that, anybody? I would never say, I'd say, Joe, do you want to know how to pull off the Christian life? Mimic me. Oh, please don't do that. But, you know, uh, I'm a dad and my kids are adults and married and all that stuff now, but Boy, I, I remember the very first... There's another verse like this in First Corinthians, in Philippians chapter 4, verse... I believe it's verse 9. Paul says there, Whatever you've heard or seen or received in me, do it. And I remember I, they, I first studied that passage when my children were really, really young, and it, it hit me. I thought, I would never say that to somebody. And I thought... Every single day, that is exactly what's happening. My kids are seeing what I do. They're watching what I do. So whether I like it or not, they are doing what I do. My wife has a a collage. She has three of them in our family room. Uh, One is when the kids were real little. Another collage is Joanna's wedding. and Another collage is, is Jonathan's wedding. But the one of when the kids were real young, there is, and it is one of my favorite photographs. I'm out cutting the grass, and Jonathan, he's about six, maybe five. He has a little plastic mower, and he's pulling his mower back on me. I'm so glad she took that photograph. That is a perfect illustration of imitation, isn't it? So if he imitates me when he's a little tiny boy cutting grass, he's also imitating a lot of other areas. Okay, now it is really important to connect verse 16 with chapter 11, verse 1 of this book. Paul says, be imitators of me as I imitate Jesus Christ. So Paul is imitating Jesus. And as he imitates Jesus, he tells the Corinthians, you imitate me. It tells us something about um, it tells us something about how spiritual truth is passed on from generation to generation. It is not only by words. It is also by observation and modeling. My church, I'm part of a, I think many of you know, I'm part of a little church plant. The thing has grown like crazy. We're 
just uh, it's, it's really it's a delight. I don't want to lead anything, but I'm really anymore. I did that for 20 years. But these guys are just great guys to work with. They've asked me to head up a task force to put together a youth ministry program at our church because our church is it's uh, about 200 people, but it's a lot of young families, just little kids running around everywhere. Well, in five years, we're going to have problems because if we don't have some kind of functioning youth ministry, we're going to lose them all. And I'm really concerned about that because my own conviction is um, that the typical youth ministry model of most evangelical churches isn't working. Lots of fun, lots of activities, ski trips and all that stuff, but not a lot of depth to it. And we see that. We see the evidence of that lack of depth when the kids go off to college. Steve Henderson has done a study. 80% of evangelical kids that go away to college by the end of the first semester are no longer going to church. By the end of the second semester, they're, they're raising serious, serious doubts about their belief. By the end of the fourth semester, in other words, the end of the sophomore year, 50% of that 80% no longer consider themselves Christians. That's serious business. Steve, uh, our, um, Christian Smith, who's now at Baylor, he had been at Notre Dame, has formed an organization. They've been studying it for almost uh, 18 years, studying the emerging adult, the 18 to 30-year-old. And the result of their study is that it's been a catastrophic failure. If you look just at the numbers, now I'm not just there are many, many kids that are just going great. But overall, I mean, it hasn't worked. And so what we're trying to do, and what I'm heading up a group, but we're trying to look, what, what can we, because we have the luxury of setting something up. We're not in the middle. It's been operating for 20 years. Now we're going to change the whole thing. Oh, that's really difficult. But we have the luxury, and we're trying to look at, there are about three or four different models out there in a lot of different parts of the country that are really doing some neat stuff, challenging and equipping and admonishing and exhorting these kids, you belong to Jesus Christ. And it is incumbent upon you to internalize his values and his morals and his ethical standards, not the world. Because as you leave your parents' home, you will be inundated with all of those challenges. And you know the most this is what all these different things are showing. The most effective way to equip young adults is through mentoring and modeling, not just teaching. Now, that is really important teaching. And the second part of it is the parents must work with the youth group leaders to pull this off. If parents have the attitude, okay, they're 12 or 13, now they're yours. <laughs> And you take over from here. And they come home from youth group where they've been challenged and they've heard the word and they see it being modeled and they come home and say, you know, dad says this, that church is really important to him, but, you know, when he's tired, he doesn't go to church. And it's really not really, he says that Jesus is the most important person and I never see him reading the Bible. He doesn't pray. He doesn't lead us in prayer. He really doesn't mean it but that the child actually articulates. You see what I'm saying? And so what this, one, one group's called the D6. It's D6.com, and they're taking Deuteronomy 6. And part of what they're saying is you've got to have 
parents who are really serious about their walk with Christ. And uh, church leaders, youth group leaders, really serious about the walk with Christ. And the kids are seeing this. They're not only hearing it, they're seeing it. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes sense to me. That makes sense. Because Deuteronomy 6 is that, it's called the Shema, but it's the it's one of the key things of, of, of Judaism that, you know, you, you teach your children, you teach them formally, but then you, as you're walking by the ways, you sit down, as you write, just throughout every part of your life, you're just talking to them about God. And you're showing them that every part of your life is important to the Lord. I, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think just naturally, we, we as parents, we can get that idea. Well, I, they're about 13 now. They're, I'm kind of done with them. Now you take over from here and I'll, get them, I'll bring them here. And I'll send them to the, to the uh, ski retreat in January and to the camp in the summer. And anything else you do, I'll pay for it. That's good. But, you know, I'm, I'm kind of done. No, you're not. So I don't know. I don't know if you're following, but this is what Paul's getting at here. Because he didn't say, do as I teach. He said, imitate me. Because I imitate Christ. So it's not just the words. It's every, If Christ is important to you, your children should see it. If your walk with Jesus Christ is important to you, your children, I'm not, I'm not saying this to any of you. I don't, I'm trying to paraphrase it the way Paul would paraphrase it. It's what he means by imitating. And I think that's an enormous challenge. Because when we get home, that's when the real us comes to the surface, you know, especially when our kids. And, oh, man, I have many, 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 many rem- memories of that when I didn't do a very good job in that area. That's what Paul is getting at here. You got that? Do you understand? I'm trying to really, really embellish what mimic, imitate means here. Andrew? And I have a question. Just, I mean, I can, I can understand kind of the practical application as a, as a parent. What about a more... Um, lateral relationships. I see, you know, I see Joe doing something he shouldn't be doing or something. Uh, and, and coming to him, I personally struggle in the, the rebu- rebuke of a brother because I feel like when I'm doing that, I'm, I'm setting myself up as some sort of like to be more spiritually mature or advanced or something like that. I understand. And have a hard time humbling myself saying, I can't get it right either but I have the right to tell you this. Does that make I do. I know exactly what you're saying. Totally. What, what are we going to do with that? Well, that doesn't apply here, so just forget <laughs> it. <laughs> it is important, uh, and Joel answered that question uh, that I posed uh, correctly, that when Paul talks about, I'm your spiritual father, you're my spiritual children, that does give him the authority and really even the responsibility to do what he's doing, to rebuke them the way he's rebuking and calling them to accountability. That is, to some extent, one of the challenges then that you and I have. I like how you put it in lateral relationships. And um, if you've led somebody to the Lord or you've mentored or discipled somebody, there is that natural responsibility, accountability dimension of your relationship where you can put your arm around them and say, I know you're struggling with this, I struggle with this too, but let's, get, let's do this together. Let's work on this together. 
I think one of the things that that makes it more and more important and more and more necessary for holding one another one another mutually accountable is as our friendships as our relationships deepen in Christ. You know, because you use Joe, I'll use that same. You know, you let's say you and Joe have been you know acquaintances for about four weeks. That's probably not real wise for you to call him to account. Just just practically speaking, when he doesn't trust you, doesn't know you, and you the same way, and it's kind of like he's going to say, "Well, who are you? Why are you doing this? Bringing this up in my life now? Who are you? What responsibility?" Paul didn't have to challenge struggle with that. Very clear. I led you guys to Christ. I have the right to keep you on on track. But let's suppose it's it's seven years from now, and you guys have become really you know you, it's much just a superficial lateral relationship, and that becomes there's almost like, as Paul says in Galatians six, I need to help bear the burden that Joe has. That's how I answer. It's really because it's delicate. You're right, and I think it takes. It takes a significant degree of wisdom in our lateral relationships, like, like the way you put it. When do I do this? Under what circumstances do I do this? Now, if you're an elder in a church or pastor in a church, that's different because I'm an elder or a pastor. That's part of my responsibility as spiritual leader of this church to help call you to account. But when we're young in the faith or we're growing in the faith, it is hard to call the Freds and the Joes and everybody else that we don't have a real in-depth relationship with. Uh, that's not a good answer. You wanted me to give a very black and white answer, and I don't know if it is, because it, it does. It depends on a couple of things there. Um, but uh, for it to be effective, and I think where, the, where Joe, if, again, using that example because you did, Joe has to have a degree of trust in you and degree of of respect and understanding that you and he are in the same boat of spiritual growth together. That may not be the case if the relationship isn't very, very deep. But he may have those relationships. Exactly. With others other than exactly. Joe, exactly. That exactly. He might be more comfortable. Biological relationships, it's absolutely a given. Spiritual relationships where you've led somebody to the Lord or you've been mentoring them, that's a given. But some of the others requires a little more wisdom, a little more discernment. Not that we shouldn't do it, because you want it to be something, whatever the nature of it might be, that's going to really, really be a positive growth spurt in that person's life. Can you go to, you know, where, you know, go to fellowship with them, you know, like something like this, something like the church that they go to, and then they're under authority of some point. Oh, sure. Right? Absolutely. So let's say you were Joe's pastor. I could That's, you know, go to church with Joe and mm-hmm. say, hey, Dr. Eggman, have you, have you noticed this? Yes, you know, sure. In, in mm-hmm. private, obviously. Because you're... you're, you're see- I don't have the right to do that. I mean, yeah. Because you're seeking the things that's honoring to the Lord. You want to see whatever the issue is, the person be able to grow through that, grow because of it, become more spiritually mature. It's delicate. And, and one of the things, too, is we don't do this very often. We really don't. We really don't do this very often. As a teacher, it's very easy for me to do it with my students because that, a relationship is, you know, they're, they're pretty open to that. 
But I, I mean, I love how you do it. But the lateral, ah, it's a different faculty member. Mm. <laughs> when I was president, that was easy for the most part. But boy, I mean, it's just it's delicate. It makes it, you know interpersonal relationships require a lot of wisdom and a lot of discernment because you don't want it to be counterproductive or even harmful. And that that does taste. So I don't know if I've answered your question. It's kind of a long. That's a really good one. I'd like to conclude um, in the remaining moments just looking at how 17 through 21 fits into this. As I said, this is the accountability section. There's been a review who they are. There's been the rebuke in this very, very sophisticated but very clear rebuke and an an irony that just you can't miss it. And then the loving reminder of the relationship which gave him the authority to do what he's doing. But now, for this reason, I sent Timothy to you, who's my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of the, my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every, every church. Timothy's coming, and he's going he's gonna to review some of this stuff. He's probably going to say exactly the same stuff I did. Why did he send Timothy? Well, to review, to to reinforce what's for accountability oh my Timothy's coming okay let's clean the house you know that's uh, that's put the best china out I mean I'm making that up you know what I mean because when you have somebody that is 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 you want to put on a you make a good impression you want to show that you're taking seriously what your spiritual father said now some of you become arrogant as though I were not coming to you What's verse 18 saying? You're acting as if you're not accountable. But you are. Men, listen. Without accountability, arrogance does develop. Because without accountability, you can, it's sometimes subtle, it's usually slow, but it's perceptible. You develop the attitude, the idea that I'm invincible. I'm autonomous. But when there is accountability, there's always that check. And that's a positive. We want account. That's why, you know, when you're in business, you guys, when you do performance reviews, why do we do performance reviews? Well, they can be harrowing experiences, but you know, I think most of us do a performance reviews to Im- improve the, the, the person that they're growing through for personal development, the development of the company. Are they on track with the values and mission of the company? I mean, that's, we do those performance reviews, but that's a, what that, a performance is accountability. It's calling people to account. And it's a very, it should be a very positive thing if it's done correctly. And that's what Paul's saying. You guys are arrogant because you didn't think I would ever come and call you to account. But I will come to you, if the Lord wills. And I shall find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod? With love and a spirit of gentleness. What's that rhetorical question at the end mean? 
What'd you say, Mark? Just say better behave. Right? Yeah, well, in a way, because I want you to take seriously everything I've said in these first four chapters. Now, Lord willing, I'm coming. I know he sent Timothy. I'm coming. And the way I come and the demeanor uh, and ambiance of my coming is going to be I'm either coming with a rod, and that's the metaphor of correction. That's a very, it's a foreign thing in America today because we don't, and you know, I don't know where you're at, but we don't paddle children, you know, we, well, anyway. So it's, we don't even talk about that anymore. This is probably an obscene rhetorical question in America today. We don't use the rod. Or with love and the spirit of gentleness. Love and the spirit of gentleness to affirm and to edify and to encourage. It's almost like he's saying, it's up to you. I want to go back to the previous verse for just a second. Why is he talking with his authority like that? And I just want to understand. He, he himself seems like a, he's, he's using uh, discipline and, and strong words and, mm-hmm. and authority more than normal in the Bible. And you can see, yes, it, it has the love of Christ, but it still has some kind of uh, authority. You've answered your question, I think, in a sense, Mark, because I don't. Maybe I, you, you, I don't know if you. I don't know if you were here when I started. I can't remember if you were here, but I said I want to look chapter look at chapter four in the context of First Corinthians, but also Paul is laying out for us kind of a methodology of how we deal with people that we really care about when it comes to spiritual things, and it's a mixture of tough love, firm strong, authoritative call to accountability with love and affirmation. And I, you know, I think uh, you, you've heard discussion as well. That's certainly how we deal with our children. I mean, our biological children we're raising. It's probably also to a degree characteristic of, of how we may deal with um, you know, spiritual children, very close people spiritually to us that we've either led to the, to the Savior or whatever. But I think it gives us a really strong model of what the mixture should be. It's got to be strong. It has to be firm. And to appeal to the authority that you have with the goal of behavioral change. But then also, don't forget I love you. You're my children spiritually, is what Paul's saying. I'm your spiritual father. One, I have the right to do what I'm doing, but two, this comes out. That's why I say to you, listen, imitate me. I imitate Christ. Imitate me. Take seriously what I'm saying. I'm trying trying to be all that God wants me to be as a steward of his grace. So I'm issuing you that. That's an audacious challenge. Imitate me. Just like a dad. Whether the dad articulates it exactly that way or not to his son, that's exactly what his son is doing. He's imitating his dad. Now, Kohlberg also has done a study, when do boys stop imitating their dads? Well, one of the real tragedies today in our culture, we have many, many boys who don't have a dad. So they don't imitate. They don't have anybody to imitate. And that, 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 the, enormity, the enormity of that issue is starting to really be seen in this generation. My daughter teaches fifth grade, and we, we played golf with them on Monday, and... And Joanna was telling us, you know, the school you just started. 
she was just, and you just hear these stories of these kids, and I, I just, I just can't believe what they're coming from. One of her little boys, uh, uh, a really neat little kid, Peggy goes up and she helps in the reading program in Joanna's class every Tuesday, and she's met him. She's been reading with him. He never knows when he goes home from school. He never knows where he's going to sleep that night. Because his mother has a boyfriend. He doesn't know who his father is. His mother has a boyfriend, and it depends on where the mother and the boy. He doesn't know. It can be an aunt. It can be the next-door neighbor. It can be grandma. Just think of that. He doesn't know where he's going to sleep that night. And all of the role models in his life, what's that poor little... I mean, what Paul's talking about here, what Deuteronomy 6, is totally absent in that boy's life. What are the odds that he's going to grow up to be a juvenile delinquent and end up in prison when he's an adult? They're pretty high. They've done statistical studies on that. That's really, really, really high. When there's no resident father, I, I have the statistics in, in my office, but it, 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 it jumps so high. And so you just multiply this little boy by thousands and thousands and thousands of kids across this country. And I'm saying only because what Paul is saying here, that's, if that isn't present, if I don't, and, and I, I, one of the reasons I do Bible studies is like, I want you guys to be exposed to this so that it changes you. That process of transformation, that's, that's what makes the difference. So that then you can pass it on to your children. Because that's the only hope for this country. Our problem is not political or social or economic, it's spiritual. And for the life of me, I can't understand why the majority of people don't see that. Because we just keep trying the same thing. You remember that definition of insanity? You keep trying the same thing, expecting different results. Wisdom God's foolishness. Yeah, it's just not... And it's it's just so sad. So anyway, um, verse twenty, because I don't want to come back to verse chapter (laughs) four. He brings up the kingdom of God does not consist in words but in power. Isn't that interesting that he brings that up? Now I want you to just think about it in this way. When Jesus showed up, Matthew 4, we see that, we see it in Luke. Jesus' message was, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. The same message John the Baptist had. What kingdom? The promised kingdom of God. Now, it's the Davidic kingdom, it's all the stuff that comes out of the Old Testament, but it's God's kingdom. It's what's in, it's what's in Daniel 7 being fulfilled. There will be all these great world kingdoms. But after the Messiah comes, the kingdom of God will begin on earth. And so, and this is another metaphor of the New Testament, you and I are citizens of a new kingdom. Not the kingdom of the United States. And we are citizens of the United States. I don't mean that, but it's it's another kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is slowly, subtly, it is beginning its triumphant invasion of planet Earth. And what the book of Revelation is all about is it's going to win. 
The kingdom of God, that's one of those many songs that are in the book of Revelation. The kingdom of God has come, and he will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. And so Paul is saying the kingdom of God is not just about words. They are very important, but it's about power. It's the power of God released in you through his spirit. That's why Paul is so concerned about the Corinthians. Because they represent God. They represent his values, his morals, his ethical standards. They represent the values and standards of the new kingdom. A supernatural kingdom. It's a a great theological statement. Romans 12, he has a similar It's a very similar statement. The kingdom of God does not consist in food and drink, which is an issue in chapter 14, but it's about God's power. Next week, we're going to do chapter 5. I'm going to give you an assignment. Fred, it's your responsibility to remind me that I gave you this assignment. (laughs) It's Romans chapter 5. I'd like you to read those 13 verses. I would really like you to read them. I don't have any authority in your life. There's no accountability in this class. So I'll just beg you. I'd really like you to read it. And if you have time, I'd like you to read it twice. Try to figure out what is going on here. Why is Paul so upset about this issue? What's the issue and why is he so upset? And God willing, we'll try to do chapter 5 in one sitting. I don't know if we'll make it, but we'll, we'll try. All right, I'm going to have to stop because i got another 115, so let me uh, pray. Father, thanks for our time together. I, um, I trust that the way we approach chapter 4, trying to apply it to our lives as well as, of course, understand what Paul is saying, is um, what's achieved, is to your glory. Uh, Lord, we want to be men that are allowing you to grow your spirit's uh, work in our life of transforming us. We do want to grow. We don't want to remain static. But living in this kind of a world where it's increasingly more and more difficult, where we see the values and morals and ethical standards no longer fit with our values, morals, and ethical standards, we seem to be going against the grain increasingly. How do we live in that kind of a world? Well, that's sort of what Paul's talking about here. So help us to be mutually encouraging to one another, to be supportive of one another. We try to pray for one another. But just as we together uh, grow in uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we're in this together. We're supporting one another. None of us is any further along than others. We're no spiritual elite We are simply men who are serious about our faith and our walk with the living God. And we want to to see that manifested in every area of our lives. So God, as we try to pray each time we're together, as we're dismissed now, as we go our separate ways in the very busy, full lives we live, help us to represent you well. In Christ's name, amen. See you in a week.